humans have been enjoying wine for 8,000 years or more, and there's never been entry exams, literacy tests, diplomas, or membership fees. You can go as far or deep as you want, or just take it all in and find your happy place. That being said, we like to spend our week looking for things that we can share with you in this space and time. We'll give you food for thought, ideas for adventures, and most weeks, tips, pointers, and insights that you can use the minute the program ends. Wine has always united us. It still does. And we've never needed that more. So climb aboard. There is no time like the present to get your adventure started. So here's your host, the doctor of deliciousness, the chairman of the Bordeaux, the top gun of wine fun, David Wilson. And it's time for your weekly grape encounter. And if I tried to explain to you everything that has happened this week and every place that I've been, you would tell me that I'm totally nuts. I have been dragging about 150 pounds of luggage all over Europe, going to countries I wasn't supposed to go to in lieu of countries that I was supposed to go to. I know none of that makes any sense, but we'll explain some of it during a conversation that I'm going to have with a guy that I think is one of the hyper coolest winemakers I have ever met. I interviewed him years ago, and I mean, that's got to be like at least 12 years ago. Had so much fun. Here's the other thing. He is really the godfather of Italian varietals, not just in California, but I'd say in all of America. He makes so many different wines, mostly Italian varietals. He gets it right. He doesn't worry about making Americanized wines. He just does what's right with these grapes. And my brother is such a huge fan of his because he lives very near the winery and the area where, you know, he grows all of his grapes. So brother brings wine to holidays. I get to drink them for free. And now I get to share with you the wit and wisdom of Greg Graziano from the Graziano family of wines. Greg, we almost didn't get this interview together. We've had so much technical problems here, but thank you. No, thank you. This is an honor and a pleasure to be on your show, David. I'm excited because you know how much I like to talk. So this is just amazing. My brother said that he wound up in a community pool with you and the conversation was so long that most of the water in the pool had evaporated by the time you guys were through talking. I, know I don't my know if there's thinks, any truth to that. My wife thinks I'm a preacher, you know, and I get to be a little bit like that when I believe in something. So he and I were talking about all kinds of stuff. So yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a, a preacher and I, I like to talk a lot. So let's just give people a very clear idea of what your operation kind of looks like and feels like. You're making what? Is it 30 different varieties? of wines. Do I have that right? Yeah, often. And, and basically for my own operation, but also for other people, because we not only make wines for ourselves, but we do custom winemaking for about five other wineries in our place in Redwood Valley. So everything from natural wine to certified organic wine to tanker truck, you know, guys bring tanker trucks to our place and we unload them and take care of them and bottle them. We do the whole entire thing. You know, we sell case goods, we sell grapes, we sell bulk wine. 
wines. I consult for other wineries. We basically do everything we can to stay in business. You talk about the tanker truck wines, and that's actually what I call them. I refer to them as tanker truck wines. Right. And by the way, you know, nothing wrong with them. Yeah. You can make good wine from, you know, the the bulk grapes. They're not going to be great wines necessarily, but I've had some surprisingly good wines that came out of a tanker truck. But, you know, it's all putting things in perspective. If you really are going to sit there and pontificate about a bottle of wine and dig deep into its soul, then probably uh, tanker truck wines wouldn't be good for that. But most of what Greg Graziano makes would be good for, you know, sitting there and talking about wine. However, Greg, we have a saying on this show, and the saying goes like this, that wine should be a social lubricant that stimulates conversation about everything except the wine. You know, the the whole purpose of the wine should be to bring people together, to start conversations, to uh, gain understanding, to end wars. Boy, we could use some of that now. Oh, could we? Do you agree? Oh, my God. I totally I totally agree. You know, I totally agree. And, you know, it is a lubricant and sometimes for the best, sometimes not for the best, because sometimes a little bit too much alcohol or a little bit too much wine can make you say things that maybe you shouldn't say, but you believe what you want to say. What's the most obnoxious thing that you've ever witnessed from somebody who is trying to show off their wine knowledge? Mm. You know, that guy, it's usually a guy. It's not a woman. Yeah, no, it's, you know, that's a tough one. It's kind of like there's a, there's a guy that used to do cartoons from the Pacific wine company in San Francisco. And he would do these cartoons and this one cartoon he shows of this guy talking about, oh, well, you should have tried my 75 Bordeaux. It was much better than the 71. And he's talking to this girl. And in the meantime, she's hanging herself from the ceiling because she's so tired of listening to this bullshit about these great vintages and all this other stuff. I mean, that, you know, you can run into those kind of people that that's all they believe. And that's the only kind of wine they want to drink is things that cost a million dollars a bottle that get ratings of 100 points. And, you know, it's interesting when you talk about the different years, especially when we're having a conversation about California wines, because weather here is so consistent and growing conditions are so consistent that, you know, when I look at The comments that are posted by, you know, organizations who keep track of such things, no matter how bad the year may have seemed, you know, it always ends with, you know, we're going to have a really good batch of wines, you know, made. And, And so I don't know that we really say, oh, an 82 or a 79 or whatever was really the bomb where wine was concerned because they're pretty much all good. Is well, that you right? know, yeah, it, it, that, well, it depends on where you're at. And, and again, really good winemakers and good grape growers can make really good wines in so-so years. And even if it's a real bad year, if they're really good, they can make drinkable wines. I mean, yeah, they're yeah. not going to be perfect or ideal. But again, you know, that's one of the things that makes winemaking different than beer making is that, you know, every year is different. And no matter how much you try to make the wine always really great, no matter how much things you do the same or different, the wine's always going to turn out different because the vintage is always different. So why does a guy like Greg Graziano decide that he's going to make so many different types of wine? I picture you most days spinning plates on a stick, you know? (laughs) <laughs> and you know, yeah. you know, I used to see that on what the Ed Sullivan show, Sullivan and, show, and yeah, they'd have yeah. those the guy that's spinning the plates, and he has to, you know, there's all these poles in the air, and that's 
to me what making 30 different wines probably looks like. I'd be lucky well, or, to make and, one. Or more. Or more. Or more. Again, right. Probably more than that. But what? but again, you know, when you do something, again, I've been making wine for over 45 years. I grew up in this business. So my father and my grandfather taught me how to grow grapes the way they did it. And then I went to the University of California at UC Davis there. And I never graduated, but I went for a year until I just said, okay, I've heard enough. Now I'm going to go start my first winery and I'm going to make wine. And I really believed that I would learn more by actually doing it than I would reading about it. But again, I have hundreds of wine books and I've read most of them. And I every and I listen to podcasts and I listen to radio shows. And I and I, every time I hear something, I go, hmm, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So that's really the secret is you just got to keep sucking in everything you hear like a sponge. And some of it you're going to believe and some of it you go, hmm, I didn't know that. So then you look, you do a little research and you go, you know, that that person was right. Or no, that person really didn't know what they were talking about. Because even a guy like me who has been doing this his whole life, I may say things that are maybe incorrect. You know, I don't do it on purpose, but I'm, I don't know everything, obviously. And are, are you, are you opinionated? Oh, Highly opinionated. <laughs> okay. Highly opinionated. Yeah. yeah. I'll take everything I don't like, everything I like, but you know, there's always different, you know, I don't like Sauvignon Blanc, right? But there are some examples in the world I really do love. I love Sancerre. I love Puy Fume. I had one of the greatest wines in my entire life about a year ago was a 70 Ikem, right? Okay. It was, it was like mind blowing and it's made from Semillon and Sauvignon. So there you go. You know, there's not a particular great wine I love in general, but that wine was one of the greatest wines I've ever had in my life. Okay. So since there's not a particular wine that you love in general, what do you care the most about in terms of wines that you make, in terms of how that affects your reputation? What is it that people are looking for from you that you better not blow it? Well, I think one of the the, the greatest examples is that is uh, probably our Mendocino's Infidel. Yeah. It's one of our biggest selling wines. It's, you know, we have a very complicated business model. We have five labels, which produce a bunch of different wines and they're different varieties. So I have to learn, you know, about how to make all those wines, right? I've got to learn how to make Chardonnay. Chardonnay is not a very favorite wine of mine, but if I'm going to make some, I better make it really well. And yes. I better learn how to do it. I made my first Chardonnay when I was 22 years old. It was 1977. I made this Chardonnay and it won a gold medal in the uh, LA County Fair. And this judge said, you know, you had to go down to LA and have lunch with him if he won a gold medal. It was us in Chateau St. Jean. And he looked at me and he goes, who are you? And it was like, <laughs> okay. I, I ever made. And you get lucky when you don't know things and you have good taste, <laughs> you know? It's like, All right, we got to take a break. We'll be back with Greg from the Graziano family of wines in just a moment. Stay with me. David will be back with more grape encounters right after they touch up his hair and makeup. Oh, wait, this is this is radio. Well, there's still paparazzi after the show to deal with. No. The only thing that Mendocino County winemaker Greg Graziano can't tell you about wine is how many different choices he makes. It's somewhere between dozens and cowabunga. Artisans like Greg don't count, they create. Did Da Vinci or Michelangelo take inventory? Let's just say that Italians like Greg can easily get carried away, especially when it comes to food and wine. Great wine is in Greg's DNA. His immigrant grandparents started making Mendocino wines in the early 20s, and despite being the head honcho of the much-beloved Graziano family of wines, Greg is just a humble, lovable guy. 
When you play in the dirt all day, you can't help but be down to earth. Ask your wine cellar for Graziano Wines or just visit GrazianoFamilyOfWines.com. They've got five different brands. Why? Well, because Italians tend to have big families. Life is just more fun with a Graziano at your table. At MM Organics, we're surrounded by health nuts. That's because we're obsessed with lowering blood pressure, cholesterol, and the risk of cancer. We want to make weight loss easier and help you strengthen everything from your heart to your teeth, nails, and hair. Full disclosure, those health nuts are actually dry-farmed heirloom certified organic raw walnuts. Rich with essential vitamins and nutrients, they're vastly superior to other nuts. Imagine, walnuts can actually lower stress and boost your brain power. No wonder MM Organics customers are so darn smart. MMOrganics.com is where you'll find our uniquely irresistible raw walnuts, walnut butter, oil and flour, sprouted flavored walnuts, and decadent fair trade chocolate covered walnuts, which pair beautifully with our legendary two horse port style wine. MMOrganics.com, eating any other nuts is just plain nuts. Welcome back to Grape Encounters. Did you know there are more compounds in wine than in blood? Maybe vampires ought to rethink their drink. So here I am back in Europe, and it seems like I've spent most of my time over the last five days that I've been here talking to Greg Graziano, the Graziano family of wines. He makes five different labels, more than 30 different wines. I've had so much of his wine. They really are personal favorites. One of the things that is so cool about his wines is that he makes a lot of Italian varietals. You've heard me on this show recently really preaching about how important it is for you to start discovering Italian varietals because it's a family of wines that scares a lot of people away. They've got complicated names and they can't figure it out. They don't know whether they're dry or fruit forward or what they are. And so there are a lot of people that are really missing out. Greg Graziano, what are you doing to educate people and get them to drink these wines that scare them because of the name on the bottle? You know, one of the great things about California is we have such a wonderful climate here and in Mendocino where we are, we can make a lot of really wonderful wines here. And it's a very underrated region and yes, it's, it's just a fabulous place. And we can do a lot of things really, really well here. Chardonnay does really wonderful here. We have a ton of Cabernet. It doesn't really do very well, but of course, everybody wants to plant Cabernet because like 65% of all the grapes in Mendocino go to Napa and Sonoma and Isn't maybe Monterey. Funny? People don't know that, but you know, we're the Jackson family, the Constellations, all those big companies, Gallo, all those companies buy a ton of grapes up in Mendocino and blend them with their Napa and Sonoma wines. And we get no credit because they can come up here and buy the grapes for less expensive money. And that's what they're trying to do. We talked about this a number of times on the show, but I think it's really super important for people to understand that you can pick up a bottle of wine that says Napa or Sonoma or whatever, and a lot of the juice in that bottle can be from someplace else. Greg, can you just lay out the rules so that people 
have a clear idea in their head about how it all works? Sure, sure. So we have a, unfortunately, the Appalachian Control System here is run by the Tax and Trade Bureau, right? Not really an agency of winemakers or government thing. It's it's the people that want the money that do the taxes. But we do yeah. have laws here. So if you have a, a state appellation like California, or you have a county appellation, Mendocino County or Sonoma County or Napa County, 15% of your wine can be from another vintage. So if it says, you know, 85 you can put 15% 86 in there. Okay. If it's a varietal, you can put 75% of that variety and you can blend as much as 25% of a different variety into that bottle and still call it that variety. Now, if it's an Appalachian wine, meaning if it's Napa Valley or if it's Anderson Valley or Potter Valley or whatever, an approved Appalachian of the United States, it changes. You can only put 5% of another vintage in there and still call it that vintage. And you can only put 15% from another area into that appellation, and you can only put 15% of another varietal into that wine in order to call it that same wine. So the, the things get really tight. Now, if you put a vineyard name on it, like Bill's Vineyard Cabernet, it has to be 95% from that vineyard. Okay, so wow, things tighten up quite a bit. That's a really concise explanation, but I just want to make sure I understand one thing. It's always 25% of the bottle can be something else. Is that correct? Not of a vintage, no, but a different grape variety. So if it's a county appellation or California appellation, you can put 25% Merlot in it and still call it Cabernet Sauvignon. But if it's Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon, you can only put 15% Merlot in it and still call it Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. Okay. Let's talk for a moment about Zinfandel because I have consumed quite a number of yours over the years. Really love them. And then you have this thing called Coro that I want you to explain as well. It's something that you guys are doing up in Mendocino County that I think is really super interesting. And I'd love to see winemakers in other regions do something similar. I'm sure they do. But I just feel like Zinfandel is the the most unfairly treated wine on the planet because for some reason, I think people look at Zinfandel as being sort of a frivolous wine. It's not really a serious red wine. It's a playful wine. It's got the word fun right in the middle of its name. So how bad could it be? Right. But, But why is it that people don't take Zinfandel as seriously as Cabernet Sauvignon, let's say, when I think it can be made so elegantly, it can be so beautiful. It can be very sophisticated. I would agree. You know, we used to make a lot more Zinfandel than we do now for those very reasons, but it wasn't wineries like myself that made this happen with Zinfandel. And I'm there's a culprit out there, and I don't want to really malign it, but I could. But there's a big region in our Central Valley of California that grows a lot of Zinfandel, okay? And it's got a good reputation for the wine. I personally don't like those wines. They don't taste good to me. They're out of balance. They're flabby. They have soft tannins. They have high pHs and low acidities. And I think what happens, because that is a pretty popular Zinfandel region, a lot of people go to there and then they go, ooh, I don't like this wine. So I must not like Zinfandel, right? As opposed to having Graziano Zinfandel or some other Mendocino Zinfandel that's old vines. We have a lot of wonderful old vines in Mendocino. We age our Zinfandel in barrels for a minimum of two years, as much as three years. We want to make the wines as hedonistically wonderful as we possibly can. The wines in Mendocino have great balance. They have great fruit. They have wonderful tannins. So again, I think that Zinfandels from other regions, which are more popular for whatever reason, I don't understand, that people 
taste those and then they go, ooh, I don't like Zinfandel because I don't like this Zinfandel. There's a broad range of different Zinfandel styles. Uh, you're, you're definitely spot on with that. And I think when you find Zinfandels that you like, then you should continue to explore both that region and that winemaker because there's a world of difference between one Zinfandel and another. But when you land on one that's really yummy, you're going to think differently about Zinfandel. The other thing, Greg, is it's a double-edged sword, really, but white Zinfandel which uh, originally came to us courtesy of Sutter Home, it gave people an idea of what Zinfandel isn't, okay? Because you can make any wine that tastes like white Zinfandel out of pretty much any grape. Right. But on the other hand, it's hard for me to get angry about what white Zinfandel kind of did to the market because look how many people it brought to wine that wouldn't have started consuming wine were it not for that. And eventually a lot of these people develop a more sophisticated, palate and get more and more interested in other wines and they sort of move away from those sweet wines. So should we thank them for this? Well, no, we, we should thank the white Zinfandel craze for one other thing that's probably more important. What's that? At that time period, Zinfandel was going through a difficult time. Zinfandel's gone up and down through the, the century about how popular it was. At that particular time, Zinfandel was hurting, right? So white Zinfandel came along and it saved thousands of acres of really good Zinfandel vines. So that's one of the great things that white Zinfandel did for Zinfandel is it saved a lot of really good old vineyards. All right, we've got to take a break. We're talking to Greg Graziano. If he's not already reached legendary status, there is a, a good chance that he will be made a saint after he's gone. In fact, he has a wine, St. Gregory, right? Yeah, St. Gregory is, is our, our brand for everything that's Pinot, but it was named after St. Gregory. My brother and I were, you know, we come from a strange family. My mother was Jewish. My father was Catholic Italian, right? So yeah. my brother and I were both named after saints. I was named after St. Gregory and he was named after St. Mark. But because it was Burgundian varietals, that's why we gave it the name St. Gregory because I'm so, I'm so you know, confused. The started all those vineyards in Burgundy, right? Yeah. Okay. Whoever's left alive after you're gone, we're going to tell everybody that the St. Gregory that we're referring to is actually you. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. Did you know that some wines are just as delicious and desirable after a hundred years as they were when they were young? Hmm, should, should I be seeing a winemaker instead of my doctor? Grape Encounters will return right after this. Smoke from increasing wildfires is tainting wine grapes and vineyard executives are looking for new ways to adapt. Pure Fresh Wines O3 technology helps vineyards overcome the problems caused by wildfire smoke by treating grapes pre-crush to improve fermentation and overall wine quality, as well as removing smoke taint. For the typical winery, saving a full harvest of grapes with Pure Fresh Wine costs only 10 cents per bottle. O3 technology has been approved by the FDA and USDA. It leaves no residue and uses no chemicals. It provides many benefits to wineries, including the removal of sulfur, pesticides, and fungicides pre-crush, the reduction of bad bacteria and mold issues, an improvement in roundness and fruit-forward palate notes, and so much more. Most importantly, it safely and naturally breaks down smoke taint molecules to save grapes from damage. Rescue your harvest from smoke taint. Visit purefreshwine.com today. We're back with more Grape Encounters. 
Did you know that there are approximately 600 grapes in every glass of wine and about 3,000 in every bottle? And remember that breakfast cereal commercial that claimed there were two scoops of raisins in every package of their Bran Flakes product? It's a good thing most people don't drink wine for breakfast because the potential to have more than your fair daily share of grapes is definitely there. Thank goodness farmers grow more grapes than any other fruit. Aren't grapes groovy? Hey, I'm a very lucky guy because I have got with me now Gregory Graziano. He really is one of those guys that if I believed in heroes, he would be in my top five. He's just he's just like cocking his head going, oh, please. Greg, I really believe it. You just have the greatest attitude about everything. And you take on an immense amount of work. You make your life incredibly complicated, which is what I tend to do, except you seem to be happy about it. <laughs> Honestly, I think you're okay with it too. I can tell. Well, I- it's really funny. Two nights ago, I was in the capital city of Slovenia and I hadn't got a chance to kind of go down into the area where everybody is eating in restaurants. There's all of these fantastic restaurants, gelato places, bars, and all these things. And you know, it's like a Monday night and I'm looking at, I swear to you, like 20,000 people in front of me. And they're all beautiful people. Like I, I just can't get over how in Slovenia, everybody is between the ages of eight and 35 and they're incredibly beautiful, whether they be male or female. It's just a thing, right? And I think it's because they're just happy mm-hmm. and they're just out there and they're having so much fun. And I'm standing there and I'm looking at all this going on, right? And I'm thinking, wow, fun for me sometimes is looking at other people having more fun. And so, you know what I did, Greg? Want to guess? Uh, uh, you, I don't know. You went to go have fun with them? I went and grabbed some gelato. Okay. And I picked some gelatos. I couldn't pronounce the name. And I said, I'm going to pick the ones that are the most mysterious to me. And I had a scoop of one and a scoop of the other. And I went and sat down amongst the masses. I had the greatest time just doing that. So my question to you is, when do you play? Because you sounded like today you had a lot of play integrated into your life just today. Well, well, we did. Um, you know, I, uh, boy, I, I did all kinds of stuff, you know, tried to get the Zoom meeting set up with you this morning, you know, went online, did all my banking. Then I met a guy from Napa Valley who came to look at my Nebbiolo grapes to buy. Then I drove down to my tasting room and I met a couple retailers from Cincinnati, uh, who sell my wine down there, a restaurant retailer, and and they brought their kids or their grandkids and their kid with them. And so then we went to uh, one of Rich Parducci's vineyards of McNabb and, and we drank some Sauvignon Blanc where the vineyard is. And then we drove out to my Calpella vineyard and looked at all my 80-year-old Carignan and my my 10 different Italian red varieties that I grow there. And then we went to, to my house and showed them our property up here. And then we went to our local pool place and, and cooked hamburgers and hot dogs. And we all went around the pool and the kids just, you know, they were going, oh God, you know, they're like seven or eight and they just hated the day. They couldn't. But man, once they got in that pool, these kids did not want to go. They did not want to leave and they had hot dogs and they had a great time and it was wonderful. So and the, and the adults got to go talk about wine and whatever we were talking about, drinking beer and drinking wine. And 
you know, talking to other people there because the kids were having such a great time. So they were really happy that we said, well, let's bring the kids to the pool, right? This is absolutely crazy. It's crazy how you could squeeze that much stuff into one day. And then, and then they came home, you know, at nine o'clock. And, and we're doing our interview. We're doing our interview literally in the middle of the night for you in the wee hours of the morning for me. We're pre-recording because of the time difference. It's difficult to do that. And I so appreciate you doing this. This morning, we were just working out technical difficulties that were just driving us both crazy. Right. And you're sitting there with a big smile on your face. And for all I know, a little bit of a buzz too. I don't know. Oh, yeah. And I, and I got a great bottle of Manzanilla Sherry. You know, it's ice cold and I'm sitting there sipping this while I'm talking to you. And I'm I'm just loving life, man. Hold it up. I want to see the glass. It's in a traditional. Okay. All, all right. Okay. I hadn't seen you pick up the glass and I thought maybe you were just jerking me around with that. Let's go back to Zen for just a minute. You guys up there have something, I don't know if you call it a program or a contest or whatever, but you make these wines, these Zins that you call Coros. Explain that. So about three or four of us old-time Mendocino winemakers decided to get together in 2000. And we decided, you know, we're not getting enough respect in Mendocino. So what we need to do is we need to create a wine that's based in the Appalachian Control System of France or the DOC System of Italy, which I'm very, I was the most knowledgeable winemaker of the bunch who knew all about these laws because I drink a lot of French and Italian and Spanish wines and whatever. So we said, okay, we got together. How are we going to make this wine that people respect? We all kind of sat around. Well, it's got to be expensive. Okay. It's got to be aged for a long time. Okay. It's got to be made from the best varieties that we grow in Mendocino. Okay. So we all kind of looked around and said, well, what is what is that variety? And I think the three or four of us that started this program said, Zinfandel. Yeah. It sure ain't Cabernet. We don't do Cabernet well here. I mean, we do a lot of Mediterranean varietals really well here in Mendocino, but not Cabernet and not Merlot and not Cabernet Franc and none of that Cabernet stuff. And then, so we all said, okay, well, if, if we're going to do a wine like Appalachian Control E or DOC, it's got to be a blended wine. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what we need to do. And then we said, well, what blends well with Zinfandel? And I said, you know, we all kind of looked again at each other. Well, there's a lot of things that blend well with Zinfandel. Syrah, Grenache, Carignan, Petite Syrah. And I said, you know, I've been experimenting for the last 10 years prior to this meeting with all these Italian varieties, Barbera, Dolcetto, Sangiovese, Primitivo, which is basically Zinfandel, all blend really well with Zinfandel too. Oh, so we said, okay, well, let's start creating the laws and and the uh, rules to make a wine that will kind of pigeonhole us. Okay, how do we make people believe that this is good wine? Well, we do what the best Appalachian or DOC wines of Europe do. They have blind tastings of the wines. And if they're not good enough, they get rejected. Okay, so that can be a little bit of lip service, but and let's have real laws. If the VA is too high or the acidity too low, or if the wine has Britannomyces, or if this and that are incorrect in the wine, the wine gets booted. It can't be Coro, which is Spanish Italian for a group of people singing together, right? And that's what we were. Okay. So, so I, I don't fully understand what, what you can blend with the Zinfandel. How does that work? Well, what we decided to do was we said, well, it's got to be a minimum, like a lot of the Italian wine laws or French laws. We got to come up with a minimum of how much Zinfandel can be in it. Okay. okay. So we figured it about 40, 50% is a good amount of Zinfandel because, you know, it's a pretty strong character grape, but you can, if you put Cabernet in it, you can overpower it. Okay. Right? 
but we don't want you to be able to put more than 75% Zinfandel in it, or else you can call it Zinfandel. Okay. So we said the wine's got to be between 40 and 70% Zinfandel, right? It's got to be aged for over two years, one year in the bottle, you know, and it's got to go through the tastings and it, it can't have more than this alcohol. It's got to be between 13 and 16% alcohol. And if it's more than that or less than that, you've got to get a variant from the group to prove that this is still a good wine and I and I want to do something different here. Okay, so now explain how how the judging works. We only got a minute or so here. So right. Well, basically, you know, we we have judges, and basically, uh, we started off with five. And what we would do is we would make the wines in a blend. We would we would give them to the group in a blind tasting. We would all try them, and then if there was problems with the wine, we'd do like five different tastings. We would say, "No, this wine's messed up. You need to fix this wine." And then would, "Oh shit, that was my wine. It's messed up. So I need to fix that." <laughs> oh, wow. So, so we would fix the wine, and then we would have another tasting, and then we would do four or five tastings, and then we would have the final tasting, which was a blind tasting. And if there weren't wines that were good enough, then, then they got rejected. And then then they were screwed. The winery couldn't put Coro Mendocino. They couldn't make this wine, right? It's, such a, it's, a, it's a great idea. I think it's a terrific idea. And a lot of you guys put really interesting, like embossed emblems on the bottle and stuff like right. that. And, and, those, and I really think it does obviously affect the value of the wine. So I think it's a really terrific program. I'd like to see other people doing it with other kinds of wines. It's just great. I love it. Yes, love it, love it. All the labels are the same, except we have our you know own logo from our winery and our name. But basically, the labels are the same, and but all the varieties are different. And there's no, there's really no cab, no cab franc, no merlot allowed in the wine. You can put maybe five percent, and we'll let you. But really, it's got to be made up of all those other Mediterranean varieties blended with Zinfandel. So it's really interesting. You're talking about how you guys don't do Bordeaux wines. That's really what it boils down to. Very well in Mendocino. Is that a thing that kind of bugs you about other wine regions as well? Because I can think of one wine region, and I'm not going to mention their name because uh, they're going to get all over my case, but they just try to grow everything under the sun. When we when we take a break, I'll tell you the region. But again, everybody's got different tastes, you know? I mean, I don't like Cabernet particularly, but some people love it no matter where it comes from. And if it says Cabernet, that's all they care about. So it could be Mendocino Cabernet, and they, they're going to still love it. We're going to be back with Greg Graziano one more time on Grape Encounter. So glad to have him. He's what every winemaker should be. No, nah, he's what every human being should be. I'm really, really pouring it on, Greg. Wow. You deserve it. If I ever have to present you with like an Academy Award, you're just going to want to go bury your head in the sand. <laughs> we'll be back with more right after this. This edition of Grape Encounters is brought to you by Total Wine & More, where you'll find what you love and love what you find. And when it comes to loving Total Wine & More, there is no bigger fan than your host, David Wilson, who reminds you to drink responsibly. B21. At every family gathering, my brother Steve and I each bring several bottles of wines and try to one-up each other. I bring wines from all over. Steve only brings wines from California's Mendocino wine country, where he's lived for decades. And even though there are hundreds of great wineries there he can choose from, he mostly brings wines from the Graziano family of wines. Now you'd think you'd see a lot of duplicates from past gatherings since most producers only make 6 to 12 wines, but Graziano has 5 brands that make literally dozens, upwards of 30 mostly Italian varietals, and all rock stars. Made by the real rock star, Greg Graziano. 
You can hear my recent interview with Greg at GrapeEncounters.com, and you can find Graziano wines all over America or buy them online at GrazianoFamilyOfWines.com. I've never confessed how much I love Graziano wines to my brother, and uh, let's keep it that way. If you tried a different wine grape varietal every day, it would take more than 27 years for you to get through the list. And while you're busy tasting all those choices, winemakers around the world will be coming up with countless blends to set you back. So, to uncomplicate things, we'll help you sort things out in the wine world and point you to the stuff that we think you'll find essential and unforgettable. Starting right here today on Grape Encounters with David Wilson. So I was talking to my new best friend, Gregory Graziano. So Greg, it's what I'm going to tell everybody, that you're my best friend, because everybody loves you, man. And I think that people would love me more if they thought that you were my best friend. So forgive me for exploiting you, but I am. You were talking to me the other day and you threw out a phrase and it was like, oh my gosh, I haven't heard that. But it so describes the state of so much of the wine industry. You were talking about hipster wine drinkers. Of course, we all know the term hipster, but, you know, I hadn't really thought about it in conjunction with wine. But yeah, they're a, a really interesting class of wine drinkers. Tell me what and who you think they are. Well, there's this movement, hipster wine, I call, which is a lot of the younger crowd, Generation Z, I think they call it. Yes. You know, and, and they're looking for some of these wines that are, we can call them natural wine. They don't have any um, sulfur in them. They're, they're not filtered. They're not fun. They're not using any yeast. They're trying to put them in clay pots and amphoras and whatever, you know, just something different and something new. And they're making orange wines and all this stuff, you know. And okay, I think all that's kind of cool. And I don't really have a problem with it. But what's happened to that category is that you have a lot of people that are making these wines. And I correlate it to a guy just uh, getting his driver's license and letting him drive a bunch of school kids around in a bus. It's probably not the smart. <laughs> Okay. Probably not the smartest thing in the world. Because when you make really natural wines, you have to really know what you're doing. And being UC Davis guy and making wines for over 45 years, to me, wine should be totally hedonistic. I mean, if you can't drink a second glass, if it's not satisfying, you should pour it down the sink. I don't care if it's organic or it's not organic, or I don't care if it's got every finding agent in the world. I don't care if it's been fined or filtered or it's got a ton of sediment in it. I don't really care. But after that first glass, if you don't want another one, you need to pour it down the sink. So as a winemaker, I can appreciate people trying to make wines as naturally as possible. I don't like to drink cloudy wines. I don't like to drink wines with sediment in it because a lot of times that sediment makes the wine taste dirty. It takes away the fruit. It can take away the texture and the structure of the wine. And, you know, I I mean, I'm not sure what you're going to get out of this dirty wine, you know, and some of these labels look like my daughter's kidney garden finger painting. And <laughs> I'm a really traditional kind of guy. You know, I'm 68 years old and I act like I'm 21, you know, because I love to party and, you know, I love to have fun. And But I love to work a lot. Work is one of the funnest things I get out of life. So, yeah, hipster wine is kind of this movement. And I don't think it's a bad movement. I just think that if they're going to make wine like that, they need to know what they're doing, you know. 
it's like I've had some of these wines, they're fermenting in the bottle. And the winemakers think that's cool. That's okay. That's not okay and cool with me. If I want bubbles in my wine, I'll buy sparkling wine. I've had a bunch of pet gnats, you know, and yeah, I had one good one, but a lot of times they don't smell very good. They're reduced. They're really dirty. I just want the wine to taste good and to look good. It's just a thing that I got. And I don't care if somebody used egg whites in it or bentonite clay. If that's going to make the wine better, that's what I care about, right? Well, you either just converted a whole bunch of hipsters to a more mainstream reality, or you just lost about 30% of the potential wine business out there. I'm not sure which. Gosh, you know, you're just a guy that tells it like it is, Greg. That was one of the best soliloquies I've ever heard on this topic. That was fantastic. I'm going to actually make one, maybe, just to prove to people, you know, that you can make really good wine this way. And you know what? If it's not good, at the end of the day, when I make this wine and I'm not going to add anything to it, I'm not going to find it, I'm not going to filter it. It's going to be made with organic grapes from my cousin's vineyard who's organic. And I'm going to do all this stuff. And at the end of the day, when I make this wine, if it's not good, it'll get blended in one of my other wines and it won't be a natural wine. Yeah. And then I'll go to the drawing board and I'll go, okay, what do I have to do next year to make it where I'm happy with it and to make sure that you're happy with it? It looks pretty. It tastes good. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. You know, if I can say something, we're one of the oldest certified organic wineries in the state of California. We've been certified for almost 30 years because we make a wine for a winery in Mendocino County that's one of the oldest certified vineyards. And their wine isn't organic, but it's made from certified organic grapes. So in order for us to make their wine, we have to be certified organic. Anyway, so we, we still make their wine. And, you know, it's a difficult thing in the vineyard because, you know, the nutrition part of making organic wines, grapes need nutrition. You know, we run 80 acres of vineyard and we're trying to make those vineyards as organic and as sustainable as we possibly can. So every year we're using less commercial fertilizers. We're using less herbicides. We're trying our very, very best to go as organic as we possibly can. I can't do it tomorrow because I want to grow the best grapes. I want to make the most money I possibly can so I can stay in business. Yeah. But that's the way we're headed. Beautiful. And you mentioned sustainability. I work really closely with the Wine Institute and we talk a lot about sustainability on this show and have for many years. That sustainability program has been in existence now for a full 20 years. Right. And we're going through it right now. We almost got certified this year, but now we're going to have to wait another year because the paperwork got a little screwed up. So we're on that path. We will be certified sustainable. A winery getting certified sustainable is more difficult than me getting the date. Well, we're starting out with the vineyards first. Next year, hopefully we will be certified sustainable in the vineyard. And then we'll start to do all the things because it's a lot of record keeping and, you know, you really have to pay attention. You know, it's a little bit of money, but it's it, yeah. but it's a lot of record keeping. But the interesting thing is that now I think it's the majority of uh, wineries in California are sustainable. Well, because a lot of the bigger wineries like the Jackson family, I think we're selling some grapes to Coppola. That's what they want. You know, yeah. they yeah. want yeah. those grapes to be certified sustainable. Okay, That's listen, it. we got to go. And I'm, right. sitting, I'm sitting here looking at my list of things to talk about. And we got like about 25% of it out of the way. Not even. Yeah. Because if I ask you a question, I'm going to get at least a seven minute answer. Yeah. At least. Which is great because we like detail here. We love detail. And by golly, you gave it to us. 
Russell. I, yeah. God, it's been an honor for me to be on your show again. And hopefully I look forward to an honor of being on again. Because like I said, I love to talk. I'm like really opinionated. And so I, I got a lot of opinions I can throw around. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to do a separate podcast. You and I are going to do together. I've even got a name for it. Are you ready? Yes. It's called Greg and Dave Misbehave. <laughs> I like it, Dave. All right. Hey, buddy, thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun. Greg, your website? GrazianoFamilyOfWines.com. All right, that's going to do it for Grape Encounters. We will be back here same time next week. We'll be on Italian soil. Look forward to talking to you then. Are you following Grape Encounters on social media yet? You're not? Well, you should be. It's the best way to hear the latest, juiciest, unfiltered wine stories. It's also the single best way to keep our unpretentious, decidedly different wine conversations going strong. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Grape Encounters. For tons of content on Facebook, you'll want to join our Grape Encounters radio group page. Or if LinkedIn is more your thing, connect with me by typing Grape Encounters Radio or Grape Encounters David in the search bar. Here's the deal. The more you click, the more I'll pour.